0: the impeachment of Donald J. Trump. What happened? President Trump is still liable for everything he did while he was in office as an ordinary citizen. Didn't get away with anything yet, yet. Join host Frank Falvey and our roundtable Harvard Executive Director for Health and Human Rights, Dr. Natalie Alinos. Higher Education Consultant, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones. And from Beacon Hill, Representative Jeff Roy, as we navigate the unique journey of America toward a more perfect union. We have a criminal justice system in this country. We have civil litigation. And former presidents are not immune from being accountable by either one.
1: Hello, this is Frank Falvey, your host for A Journey to a More Perfect Union. And we have waited a while to bring this topic back up. And the topic is the impeachment of President uh, Trump. The, uh, the trial, uh, it, it was not really a trial uh, from a legal point of view, even though the Republicans tried to uh, bring all that into play. It was a political process, and the process seems to have demonstrated uh, that we will go to extremes in in what we seem to believe, or want to believe, and we will use all different types of arguments, not because they're valid, but because we believe in this individual or his principle. It's been uh, demonstrated uh, that we're going to spend millions of dollars on a 9-11 type commission for something we already know that happened when that money uh, could be better used uh, for prevention of future incidents like that. I heard the other day on a panel that was inquiring about uh, how this happened and why we still have 6,500 troops and may have them until September. And the panel, every one of them said, I have no idea what threat there is now, and I have no idea why the troops are here. Um, the fallout from this uh, impeachment uh, seems to be multifaceted. And the presentation of the Republican arguments, Michael. Uh, you you seem to have uh, uh, been uh, influenced by or, or agreed with uh, some of them. Well,
2: you know, I I definitely agree with two aspects. Let me push back on one thing, Craig, which is that I think we do need a nine eleven style commission. First off, let's realize this is a country of 350 million people. Geographically, we are just vast. And one of the things that we sometimes forget is that we don't just live in the moment. There is a need for us to historically make sure that we have all of the details, uh, especially around significant events like the storming of the Capitol and the insurgency that took place on the 6th. I mean, you go back to the Kennedy assassination and the commission that was put together after the Kennedy assassination, you look at some of the other major uh, commissions in this country. They were not only to sort of look at what happened, but to record for history all of those various facets. Uh, I heard the same uh, interview or the same panel the other day as you did when they were asking about why the troops... Well, the unfortunate part is, you know, we can question you know, having those troops there and the expense of all of these things. But at the end of the day, we've got to be able to walk and chew gum, too. We've got to be able to make sure that our members of Congress are safe and that building is safe. And the only way to do that right now, because we don't have any of the high tech aspects of that. So, yeah, Frank, you know, I'm I'm embracing many of the things that are going on out there. I'm also embracing the incidences of history uh, that are being exposed to those who are paying attention. For example, I truly, even though I'm a historian, didn't realize that the primary reason for the establishment of the Justice Department was to protect the freedmen and to give them a national, if you will, attorney who would look after the equitable and inclusion of the freed slaves into this society over and above the state uh, the state attorney generals or the state attorneys uh, from the various states at that point. So that's why the Justice Department was established. Uh, and now to see how it has been used and denigrated in the last four years, to uh, you know, to think that we need to get it re- re-centered again uh, is important. And then finally, just the just the the idea of the uh, of the impeachment itself, uh, the misunderstanding on the part of the American people that this is not a trial the, uh, I think, uh, uh, the diversion of trying to create, uh, create this image that it was a trial, uh, you, know, you know, and in respects to having all of the rules of court, I think was also a travesty. Uh, and then to have all of the senators who voted to uh, acquit Donald Trump, and then right after, uh, in particular, Mitch McConnell, who then came out with the scathing, scathing uh, indictment, of Trump, uh, and then to sort of basically kick the can down the road and put it in some other venue, I think was just disingenuous, and also a dereliction of his responsibility to the Constitution.
3: This is Jeff. I, I'd like to uh, weigh in on, on that particular uh, point right at the outset. Um, there was a question before the trial began as to the constitutionality of the proceeding and the question was whether this proceeding could go forward uh, with regard to somebody who was no longer in office. That constitutional question was answered prior to the trial, and it was answered to say that the trial could move forward. Now, in in an impeachment process, it is the Senate that establishes the rules, and it's the Senate that determines the constitutionality of the process and the proceeding. And they ruled emphatically uh, by a majority vote that this procedure was in fact a constitutional procedure. And when I heard the statements from them after the trial, saying the only reason I voted not guilty is because I didn't believe that this was a constitutional process, I was just taken aback by the utter hypocrisy. A a ruling was made to say that it was constitutional. You heard the evidence. I want to hear your opinion of the evidence. Do you find the uh, former president was guilty or not guilty? That's the sole question. You were not being asked whether or not this procedure was constitutional. I would have been happy with an answer to that question, and then if you wanted to take the uh, decision to the United States Supreme Court to have another look at the constitutionality and allow the Supreme Court to overturn that verdict should it find that it was unconstitutional, that would have been the right way to proceed. But I agree wholeheartedly with Michael that the uh, taking the position immediately after rendering a verdict to say that he was guilty and that he was the sole and proximate cause of that event, but I could not find him guilty because it was unconstitutional, was the weakest form of decision-making that I have ever seen in my life in politics. And I lost a tremendous amount of respect. Not that I had much respect for Mitch O'Connell before the trial, but uh, that's, that was the time where I said enough is enough. You have an obligation. The American people want to know, guilty or not guilty, of the crimes at which he is charged. You were not asked at that particular moment whether it was constitutional. You were asked whether he was guilty of the crimes as charged. So I I hate to be so uh, emotional and uh, on that, but that was the deepest frustration I experienced uh, following that whole uh, escapade. However, I will say that I'm so glad that the trial did take place and that Americans got to see how it works. They got to see what actually occurred on video, They got to see evidence that we necessarily had not seen because this was uh, surveillance footage and got to see firsthand just the amount of danger that these folks were in. Uh, I think was uh, was an incredible experience and I don't care about the the verdict at this point because I know that history will look back at this moment and look unfavorably upon those who took the weak stance of saying the trial was unconstitutional.
4: And Jeff, I want to completely agree with you. Everything you said is how I feel. And as someone who's not a legal scholar and someone who's not a historian even, and someone who actually hasn't been as engaged in politics before my own running into Congress, you know, a question that always came up is, like, why are people so apathetic? Why don't they vote? Why... And this is why, because they see things as predetermined as you know our politicians not actually doing what they're not being brave enough, not being bold enough, not being courageous, not not doing what they're what the public wants them to do, and so you know for the public who watched, I agree with you, they learned a lot, and it was really important, but for many people, it was like, well, what's the point? We already know the outcome and reinforcing that message of. We already know this outcome, this is just theatrics, um, is bad for our democracy. And I want to talk about that impact, that impact on what it means for, you know, the 17, 18 year olds who are our future um, to see an impeachment that is so clear cut and yet the politicians sort of saying, you know, finding loopholes. And that creates this narrative of, you know, politicians are not really there to do what is right. They're there to find loopholes, to stick with, you know, their donors. And and that narrative, I think, you know, that was a failure on, on all our parts.
0: Jeff, this is Pete. I agree. Uh, first of all, here you have uh, senators who, even after the question of constitutionality was supposedly settled, they are taking it upon themselves, you know, ex post facto, to re-ask, reposition the question again, as though it's not settled. They're doing a rewind. They're taking a mulligan, effectively, as what's going on. And, and that, I felt, was, you know, to say that it was disingenuous is an understatement. It was craven.
2: It's just that simple. And, you know, the, unfor- the unfortunate part of it all is that, according to the Constitutional, uh, uh, according to the Constitution, they absolutely were in their uh, rights as individual jurists, if you will, to do that. Now, that's the real, I think that's the real travesty. There, <clears throat> We have so many parts of our democracy that are based upon the idea that people will do things the right way, that people of goodwill will do the right thing. And when you don't have that inside of your spirit or you do things for simply for political reasons, I agree with Natalia, that just breaks down the democracy. But unfortunately, our democracy is built upon many of those things that should be either in regulation or in law, but are actually just sort of there as a guidepost with the expectation that things will happen based on goodwill. I believe it is probably, uh, it's one of the greatnesses as well as one of the greatest flaws of our Constitution. Uh, you brought up
0: my favorite word, Dr. Mike, flaw. Let's talk about flaw, okay? Uh, one of the things that I like to do is propose, okay, what's Pete's favorite next amendment? What might that be? Okay, I'm going to put it on the table right now. I think that one of the ways that the Constitution is flawed is we have a system whereby the executive branch is held accountable by the legislative branch. The legislative branch is, at this juncture, entirely beholden to the executive branch because of the fact that they are trying desperately to maintain their position, they are sullied. It is, it is bordering on witness tampering. So my favorite amendment would be that I think it is unjust that the third branch of government doesn't get to weigh in. I would say that the House of Representatives, Senate jointly determine whether or not impeachment is warranted, as has happened here. Yeah, impeachment would be appropriate. And they make that determination by some means. And I don't think it's a 67 vote in the Senate, by the way. And then it would be handed off for a real trial in the Supreme Court. By mandate, the Supreme Court could not refuse to hear the case because it was handed to them by the legislature. And here we have a group of individuals, august Souls All, who are appointed for life and have no personal stake in the outcome regarding the fitness for office or high crimes or misdemeanors of the president of the United States. I think that's a far better arrangement. I put it before you for consideration.
3: Well, let me take my first stab at it. Go for it. And um, I like the concept, but if you consider how the real trial process works, that would not work. Because, and one of the things that I was going to propose is like a typical trial, The jurors are the finders of the facts. Mm -hmm. They are to establish what happened at a particular time, and they are to balance the uh, scales between uh, witnesses who make uh, different statements. They saw the same incident, but they testify different ways. Mm -hmm. They weigh whether somebody's lying or whether somebody's telling the truth, and they establish the facts. What the uh, what was missing from this particular trial was a set of jury instructions to tell the senators what the law is and how you are to apply the law in establishing the facts and establishing guilt or innocence. And that's what I was getting at at the beginning. We wanted to hear what the jurors thought of the facts. The legal issue can be handled by the Supreme Court. And this is where I agree with your proposal. So you have a trial. The question of constitutionality was answered. That's a legal question, Mm -hmm. but it was answered that yes, the trial could proceed. Then the trial proceeds. We never had a finding of the facts. The jury, which is the Senate, never gave us a a factual basis for their decision. So had they determined that um, the former president was guilty on the facts, then the case could have been appealed to the United States Supreme Court, where the U.S. Supreme Court is a court of appeal. They are not there to find facts. They are not to determine any factual issues. They are to say, here's the factual record, and was the decision of the jury uh, in line with the law of the case, as we have established it? so they could say either the the uh, jury's verdict in this case was uh, was inconsistent with the law, and therefore we're going to overturn it. But the second and most consequential issue they could have addressed is whether it's constitutional to try a uh, former a president, and then there would be binding precedent for us moving forward. Mm. It remains an uncertain question. Following this particular trial, the next time there is an impeachment, people cannot look back at this and say, uh, "Well, it's established precedent that we can try somebody uh, who's a former official because there was a ruling that in that case that we could try a former official." Well okay, I agree with you, there was this ruling, but at the end of the day, the jury found the former president not guilty because they felt it was unconstitutional. It's an inconsistent verdict. And the Supreme Court is there to establish what the law of the case is. And I think it would have been nice had the presiding judge at the trial sat there before the jury was to render its verdict saying, you've heard the evidence. Now let me tell you what the law requires you to, to find in order to find the person guilty or not guilty. But that for- element, which is an element of every single trial mm. that occurs in the United States of America, never happened. And it goes back to what Michael said. You know, the view of this as, a, as an actual trial is is uh, is incorrect because this is not an actual trial. I, I can't uh, can't agree with him more on that. But those are some elements. Had had this been done, I think we would have more clarity for future uh, generations considering the issue of of impeachment. I think we would have minimized the confusion that resulted as a result of this, and we would have certainly. Uh, minimized the frustration of people who said, why did we do this? This was a foregone conclusion. Uh, What did we learn from this process? I think the exposure of these these problems in the impeachment process is what I've learned from this, and I hope that uh, scholars will take the opportunity to review what we saw and propose ideas like what uh, you had suggested, Pete, or an idea such as I have suggested that give the Supreme Court the final word to rule on the constitutionality of the process.
0: I also think, by the way, that uh, <clears throat> for whatever reason, Justice John Roberts was not involved in the process and, and passed the torch off to, you know, with all respect, to Senator Leahy, who, who I really felt wasn't prepared to do the job at all. Uh, I think we might have seen a very different experience had John Roberts been sitting in the chair
2: well I, but unfortunately gentlemen the constitution doesn't allow either one of those there is no review by the by the supreme court allowed under the constitution for an impeachment there well, is the, no the
3: constitution's quiet on that issue but doesn't necessarily mean that the supreme court can't determine what was meant by what is written in the constitution so it 's never been tested, and well all, all i 'm <laughs> suggesting is let's let 's have the test hmm. and and you know maybe the Supreme Court would say exactly what you 're saying we 're not going to consider this question because the Constitution doesn 't allow us to, but I am only asking that somebody call the question and bring the <laughs> test uh, to bear,
2: yeah, but I'd have to say, Jeff, that you know the the Constitution is clear. The sole power to try and, uh, any uh, sitting uh, official under the Constitution for for uh, on on a charge of impeachment is left to the Senate.
3: Agreed. There is Agreed. That's no, the trial. No That's the trial of the process. But and I'm not saying that we take away the ability of the Senate to try the case. What I'm saying is we have a court that handles appeals if, a, if an evidentiary, evidentiary ruling is wrong, if, uh, if somebody alleges that the trial was unconstitutional, or if there was some other procedural impediment, we have a, an appellate set of courts that do, they don't retry the case. They do not find the facts. All they do is make sure that what happened during that trial was legally sufficient and that's all I'm suggesting I'm not saying the Supreme oh, Court you. should retry the case
2: but I think that would be even more confusing for the american people who again when you read the document i think the document is clear there is no no opportunity for the supreme court to enter into an impeachment other than the chief justice sit when the person is a, a sitting official and that's why it ended up with uh, the senator as the sort of, uh, you know, as the person in the chair, not the uh, Chief Justice Roberts, because this was not about removal from office. Therefore, the it's clear that for removal from office, the Chief Justice is the one who sits as the arbiter, if you will, of issues inside of the Senate when it's not. And the Senate have done this before. So this is not, I mean, there is precedent in terms of how this thing is structured, but you're right, every single impeachment itself, the Senate has the ability to create rules around it. That's the flaw. And I think both of you uh, are right. You and Pete are both right that something needs to be done, but it's going to take a constitutional amendment in order to be able to do that and something that's going to be clear because you don't need, uh, I mean, in an instance like that, you're going to need just the general public to understand what you're trying to do.
0: But that's where I think that if there were an amendment akin to what I suggested, and, and, and to Jeff's point, it begs the question, how do we bring the spirit of the court, the mission of the Supreme court whole and complete into the debate? with respect to the fact that they are a co-equal branch of government and therefore have a stake in the outcome. And, and one of the things might well have been that once the Senate banged the gavel on the constitutionality and said, yeah, we can go forward, maybe at that point, Patrick Leahy might have bowed out and John Roberts might have taken the chair.
3: I'm not but, sure. You know, Marbury okay. versus Madison is a case we learn in law school. Mm -hmm. And it's an old case, 230-year-old case, that said it's the Supreme Court that establishes what is constitutional. Okay, And what, Mm. what I have seen is that the United States Senate has usurped that function from the Supreme Court by determining for itself what is, in fact, constitutional. And I think that's a flaw in this process. And that's why I say if somebody tested this question and brought it to the Supreme Court, that would be a way for us to determine whether we need an amendment.
0: Mm. Because
3: the Supreme Court is there to answer the question as to what is constitutional. And they established that under John Marshall when he uh, wrote in that very classic opinion that it's the role of the Supreme Court to determine what's constitutional. And that was taken away in this trial. And we need to figure a way to bring it back. Because again, we have an unsettled question that will not be resolved as a result of what we witnessed uh, in, in January. Oh, I, I can't remember. Was it the trial in mm-hmm. January or February? The the months are all meld together, but what we saw in 2021 did not answer a very complex legal question, and I think the American people are deserving of an answer, one way or the other.
4: So So you bring it to
3: the Sorry, I was
4: just going to ask Jeff, who can bring this to the Supreme Court? What is the process? I mean, I'm I want to echo what Michael said that the public needs something simple to understand, and I. You know, personally, I'm having a bit of a hard time following this conversation, but my question to you is, so who can, can we still bring it forward or is that it has to happen at a future trial?
3: You know, that raises an excellent question because I wonder if it could be one senator who could raise the constitutional question. I wonder if it's one citizen, um, you know, what's to prevent me from filing a case and, uh, Um, You know, I I, I will share with you one time in my legal career, uh, I actually had to seek a writ of mandamus, which is to force a public official to take a step that that public official refused to take. And it's it's an extraordinary writ, not granted on many occasions, but uh, that's a process that might be out there. Uh, And then the Supreme Court has... uh, has the authority to determine what cases it will handle. There's a a writ of certiorari, whether uh, they will grant that writ to uh, hear the case. I mean, there are petitions, thousands of petitions every year to get a case before the Supreme Court. And it's about 300 that actually get taken. They decide amongst themselves which cases they're uh, they're going to consider. I think this is of an order of magnitude that uh, if they had the opportunity, they would take a case of this significance. There may even be uh, some legal requirement somewhere that I'm not aware of, and this is this is a a question for a a law professor. It's funny. I on Thursday night, uh, Roger Williams Law School in conjunction with a couple of other law schools did a program, there's a story in Today's Globe on the, on the program, but they had the law school dean who introduced uh, Sheldon Whitehouse, uh, uh, Congressman Cicilline, and the gentleman who was a law professor who was sitting behind uh, Senator Leahy, whispering in his ear about the procedural questions. Well, they did a panel discussion Thursday night on this whole trial and some of the things that happened. It was, it was fascinating to watch. And if I were to raise this question, I would go to that group and say, how can we get this question to the Supreme Court? Not a clear answer to your question, Natalia, but that's generally how the law works.
0: It also creates the domino effect as an interesting discussion, where if it were to go back to the Supreme Court uh, for reconsideration as to whether the Senate had the right to declare constitutionality, A, if the Supreme Court took it up and said, yeah, the Senate was out of bounds with that issue, and therefore every senator who then claimed, following the fact, that they were voting to acquit because of their belief in its unconstitutionality. That would create the interesting domino effect if we were to ask the question, does it negate all those votes?
3: Well, there's two ways to look at it. First of all, if the law of the case was read to these folks and they were given jury instructions, they would understand that the sole question you're being asked is whether based on these facts, the former president committed the crime which calls for his impeachment. That's your sole question. When we uh, So you answer that question, yay or nay, and the Supreme Court will make a determination if it was constitutional to begin with. And if the Supreme Court says that was an unconstitutional trial, verdict is thrown out, no judgment whatsoever. If we went with uh, the approach where they can vote however they want, and the Supreme Court determines that the uh, trial was constitutional, but we have revealed that the jurors made errors in rendering their judgment because some of them rendered a judgment that uh, was inconsistent with the law, the, the court could issue what's called a judgment notwithstanding the verdict, and say, the verdict is, uh, is uh, reversed, and we're going to send it back to the Senate for another trial, and you're going to do it all over. Those are the two options uh, that would be available.
2: Under, under a constitutional amendment, because currently, none of those options are available once the Senate has uh, has tried the individual uh, public official and a verdict has been rendered it's over two things I don't
3: necessarily it, agree with that and well and, and we'll'll we'll agree <laughs> to disagree on that because that okay. question has not been tested well well I I think it has because you have to keep in
2: context here the impeachment of a president, is only the impeachment of the top of the schedule if you will. There have been impeachments of judges and of other officials that have set all of the standards that I think were at least attempted to be applied in this particular instance. Uh, one of them for example was the uh, 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 the case of uh, uh, the gentleman during the Civil War who was the uh, uh, Secretary of Defense.
3: That would who, be Belknap.
2: Yes, Belknap. Thank you. Uh, I don't know why I forget that because the University of Louisville campus is called the Belknap campus, not necessarily named after him, but for a whole other issue. <laughs> but anyway, the Belknap, uh, the Belknap case is the one that was used as the precedent that, yes, we can impeach uh, someone who is not currently in office, uh, and that 's when the constitutional question came up because albeit he was not found guilty, uh, it was clear that he had resigned, and when the impeachment took place, he was not in office when the uh, Now when the impeachment took place, that is when the House decided to render the uh, uh, the uh, the case to the Senate. Uh, he was in office when it got to the Senate, he was not in office, which is very similar to what happened here. The issue of uh, of the supreme court i I agree first off, let me tell you this I agree that the Supreme Court needs to have a role. I think all three branches of government need to have a role here in impeachments, but the Constitution doesn 't allow that. There are only two branches that handle impeachments, well, actually, only one branch that handles impeachment, and that 's Congress. That's the House and the Senate. Even the executive branch does not have a role in the impeachment process. So unless there's a constitutional amendment, again, how do I, and I go back to Natalia's point, how do I as just an everyday citizen? I mean, I'm a dad who's, you know, working every day and I come home and I see suddenly The Supreme Court's going to uh, be involved in trying to uh, answer the question whether or not the Senate was right when it said that it was constitutional, and now they're going to take that. You know, the Senate can't. I mean, the uh, uh, the Supreme Court cannot overthrow the verdict at this point. They can't go back and tell the Senate you did something wrong because the Constitution is clear.
3: The Senate uh, has the sole power to impeach. Let me share with you in 1993. There was a there was a case involving an impeachment uh, that went to the Supreme Court. It happened to be the impeachment of a judge, and it's remarkably the case is called Nixon versus the United States. It was a 1993 case. It's not Richard Nixon. It was Judge Nixon, and uh, the Supreme Court was asked to uh, answer some questions about. Uh, whether uh, the trial was proper in the Senate of this particular judge. And I will suggest that the court agreed with you, Michael, that they did not have the authority to uh, address this issue because Article 1 says the case is to be tried by the Senate. But there were, there, you know, it was a unanimous decision, but there were some concurring opinions that express some concern that issues may come up in a trial that should have some level of appellate review. And I would suggest that this case may be one of those that uh, has left an open question that should be before the Supreme Court. Knowing the people who are on the Supreme Court at this time my guess is they will they would follow this precedent and uh, and not take the case but I still believe that this is an open question and uh, that there is a role for the Supreme Court and someday uh, probably long before I've left this planet uh, this question will end up uh, with the the Supreme Court and because it It can't go unanswered for the rest of our United States history.
1: I'd like to ask,
3: uh, I'd like to ask, not to Leah,
2: a question being a, uh, both a mom, a person who's looking at it's probably not from the, uh, from the lofty arena of I've recovered books like Jeff and I, (laughs) but uh, just as a you know a person who saw the trial, what was your take when you first heard the evidence coming out? because I know how it impacted me. Oh my goodness. Uh, so again, sort of give us that perspective. Uh, what were some of the feelings, the emotions, and then also when you saw uh, you know these basically men? uh, uh, going through these episodes of self-righteousness on the part of the president's or the former president's defense. What was your thoughts?
4: So, you know, Michael, as a parent of young kids, as someone who thinks very much about the future about, you know, are we building a country, uh, where values of, you know, are we fighting white supremacy? Are we trying to establish kind of that violence and, and, You know storming of the capital is unacceptable. As a person who has actually worked in international relations and has you know thought about coups and what it means like you know what's happening in Myanmar like I am very much aware that democracy and setting the foundations matter and you know seeing the evidence and seeing the bravery and the risk and listening to people like AOC who you know shared on Instagram you know using social media her account and the fear that she felt, and not knowing whether even the the police that were there to sort of guide her were actually there to be on her side, like really listening, really listening to the panic, really listening, um, you know, made an impact to me. And, and I personally, you know, I, I ran for Congress. So several people reached out to me and said, we're so happy you weren't there in that space that day. And, you know, and recognize that these are people, but these are people who are electeds, so that they were in real danger, and that that danger wasn't um, equally distributed that some people really, especially women, women felt um, threatened and and, you know, I want to take a step back. Women in politics constantly face harassment and discrimination and and you know, they face this double challenge of being um, you know rape threats and 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 that sort of reality. So for a woman watching an actual you know occupation and and danger, like we experience, Physical threat very differently. So you know, taking off my mom hat, but my gendered hat. I, I think for many women watching that, they we we feel scared in different ways than you know, and that's because of society and and the risks that we face. So that brought up a lot of feelings of you know, what would I have done? How would I have felt? And you know, um, Ayanna Presley's campaign manager, I think, said that the panic bat buttons were removed. You know, which gives us a sense that they were looking for those panic buttons. So that fear and that you know, creating not allowing for a safe space for women politicians to feel safe um, is also a consequence of this. Like, how will this impact those women who were in those spaces? How will that impact their desire to stay in politics? And it might not sound relevant to our conversation right now on on the legality, but these gut experiences um, matter and matter about who runs what is the expectation and, and all of that? So I wanted to share that piece of, you know, being a woman watching and someone um, there. And, but I'm not surprised. I actually didn't, you know, afterwards, you know, I, I, I sort of had that apathetic feeling of like, you know, okay, of course, they're going to, you know, it's a predetermined outcome. So it was a, a mixed feeling of, you know, watching and being outraged, but also being frustrated that it felt that it would be predetermined. Um, i not sure if I answered your question, Michael
3: let me let me throw one more um, out there, and you know i I truly appreciate that response about you know observing that from your particular standpoint. Let me throw another monkey in the wrench on the legal question and whether this should be reviewed, okay? Say we had 80 Democrats in the Senate, and they determined that based on what was observed and what videos were there, they were going to summarily find the former president guilty. They were not even going to conduct a trial. They were saying, hey, we saw the videos. Uh, let's have a vote. No trial. Do you think that's unreviewable? And let me throw a second one at you. They say, you know what, we don't want to waste the time of this body having a trial. Let's toss a coin. The minority leader and the majority leader will stand in the well of the Senate and we'll have the Speaker of the House flip the coin, and if its head's guilty, if its tail's not guilty, what do you think of that in terms of the reviewability of the constitutionality of that procedure? under either of those. Don't you think that we ought to have the Supreme Court weigh in? And those are f- far-fetched examples, but look at uh, what I've seen over the past four years. Um, I, I saw things that I never thought would occur, so these are not so far-fetched anymore. But don't you think the Supreme Court has a role in looking at this process to make sure that it's done fairly? and answer some questions.
0: Well, uh, early on Jeff? in the game, early on in the game, Jeff, there were Republicans in righteous dudgeon arguing that President Trump was entirely uh, worthy as a citizen of enjoying due process, plain and simple. I mean, So the due process argument pops up whenever it becomes an early shield. Um, and we saw that happen,
2: certainly in this case. Well, let me answer your question directly, Jeff. Given the procedural process, and let me just take your your uh, uh, your framework. The there's a supermajority in the Senate, eighty whatever party, and that party determines we're going to instantly acquit. So the process, and here is where. What you're saying can absolutely happen, but it will happen within the framework of the process. And at the end of the day, Jeff, it will be absolutely legitimate. Because don't forget, when the Republicans were in the majority, when Trump was impeached the first time, what they wanted to do was say, okay, we go through, and don't forget there's a script for all of this. So they go through the script. OK, we've received the impeachment and blah, blah, blah. All of the OK, raise your hand, take your oath on the penalty of, of being in prison. You're going to pay attention. Once that's done, I make a motion. I'm Senator so-and-so from the righteous uh, territory of blah, blah, blah and blah, blah, blah. I move that we uh, dispense with X, Y, Z. All in favor, vote. Now, I make a motion that we instantly acquit. All in favor, vote aye. Aye. I now move that uh, we're done. All in favor, aye. That's it. Believe it or not, under the Constitution, that's all they really have to do. They can do that. So those two scenarios that you just built, Jeff, are absolutely positively possible With
3: no review from the Supreme Court. And that's what what the uh, Nixon versus the United States case stands for the proposition that there are circumstances where we do need to step in, and we should leave open the door for us to step in. And um, I do believe that what happened in 2021 was one of those occasions. I could be wholly wrong, but- I call the question. (laughs) I wish it was as simple as
2: doing what you're describing, and I wish that the American people, and here's where my, again, my faith is in the American people, but my faith is somewhat uh, uh, suppressed from the idea, and thank goodness, hopefully, we'll have some future generations that'll be much more well-versed in civics and this process because uh, don't forget there's a limited number of uh, impeachments that have taken place as a matter of fact if you go to uh, uh, some of the websites uh, you will see that I think it's less than uh, I think it's less than 25 impeachments all total that's everything that's it's judges actually 17 uh, okay I was right yep. it's less than yep. 25 absolutely <laughs> yep. And they're all named and all of the results are, you know, are there. So it's not that the American people get to see this every day. Um, And as I think was clearly mentioned in the, uh, uh, in this particular impeachment trial of the former president, nothing happens to him criminally, even if he was found guilty, nothing in terms of any criminal uh, actions uh he was not going to be put in jail nothing this is just a it's a civil political trial uh and that's the part i think that is so confusing to the american people and i think these two impeachments have done nothing more than to confuse people like me and others around why even have this process when it's really based upon who's in power in the let's South.
1: go let's yeah, go back Let's go back for a minute to uh, Natalia's point about future democracy. We strongly still have a large segment of Trump followers that absolutely believe in trump and in in Trump as the president we have uh, we've gone through this process and we still have a very significant diversion of opinion. Not only as to facts, but to beliefs that are held that have not changed. In the future to me of American democracy, one of the challenges is going to be how do we survive and live together with this absolute divergency of opinion uh, and and whoever is in power, they're going to use whatever power they have to support their own standard of divergency. They're going to use whatever power they have either way to support their position, regardless of whether it's right or wrong or common sense. I mean, where did common sense go in this whole process?
3: Well, I think that's why this trial, even though it was a uh, predetermined outcome, why I think it was important, because it, it highlighted, um, first of all, just how dangerous um, insurrection can be. It highlighted that we do have um, threats, not only from um, external forces, but within our own country, we have people who will rise up and threaten our democracy. So In that to that extent, the trial opened up our eyes to be aware of these. The other thing, and and I had, I think the first show that we had done on the impeachment, um, I had gone out on a limb and said, I'm not sure that it's a good idea for us to uh, prevent Donald Trump from ever running again, Um, because I think. And and we did have a a, a nice debate during that first call on that question. I think that he remains eligible to run for president again in 2024. And and, uh, I believe I suggested if the Republicans are foolish enough to put him back uh, and to run, uh, shame on them. Uh, But I so believe in the American people that. Uh, having seen what they saw in the trial, uh, they will reject him for a second time uh, he, because he was rejected, let's remember, in November of 2020 before anybody knew what happened in this, uh, in, in this insurrection and before people knew uh, what the extent of things he would do to retain power and just how dangerous he was. So he was rejected before that. Now people have seen just how dangerous he and his rhetoric can be. And I do believe that the American people would reject him should he come back in 2024. Uh, So I I firmly believe that this was a, a, a good exercise for our democracy to see this trial play itself out. And uh, we will have some future political questions uh, to answer and see if, uh, if, if it worked.
0: I think one of the things that are most interesting about that premise is what Mitt Romney said uh, only most recently in that Trump will probably secure the Republican nomination almost automatically at that level, state by state by state, as he walks across all the red states and says, I'm back, um, what will happen is his loyal followers will automatically drop the Republican nomination in his lap. So it's either a new party forms in the meantime, or he is up again to go up against uh, the Democratic nominee. And what will then be interesting to see when that political season ramps up is the reemergence of all the Senate footage, the Capitol riots, all of that stuff is going to end up being dramatized once again at the cost of probably a billion dollars plus in the court of, of the free market court of opinion. So if, in fact, he is or is not going to be president again, it's going to be not at the primary point, but it's going to be at the national election. And there will be a massive movement of his loyal followers to reelect him and an equally massive movement of Democrats, independents and truly staunch Republicans of the old guard who don't want him to be the president. As, as they say in all the video games, it's
2: a battle of the ages. I think that there's one other prognostication that I'm going to go out on a limb and point out to. Uh, You're going uh, out on a limb? You're in I'm, my neighborhood. Uh, uh, <laughs> yes, I'm going to go out on a limb. And here's my prog- uh, prognostication. I think much of this is going to not center on the, on the videos around uh, January 6th but they're going to be the videos and outtakes of the trials, the criminal trials of Donald Trump. Good point. That I think in four years time, the landscape is going to change. I think he will have been convicted at that point of at least two crimes. One of them may be a misdemeanor, but then one of them may be a felony. Tough to
0: run for president from jail.
2: It It is not only that, but I also think that that's a disqualifier, if I'm not mistaken, from the limited law exposure that I had to criminal Interesting law, point. That, uh, you know, now, does that make him a martyr? That I can't answer. But I do know he may be disqualified. And I think what, what Mitch McConnell was calling for was for those who have the uh, both the uh, the evidence and the political will to take him to task on that. McConnell, again, the disingenuousness of McConnell is that he didn't have the courage to do it himself. He then waits after he acquits him for the bogus reason, Jeff, that I agree with, Okay, that had a, a question that had already been settled, the constitutionality of the trial itself, But here it is right afterwards. uh, And I think the, uh, you you know, the house managers immediately said that, you know, why did he give our opening and closing statement in his, um, you know, afterthought in terms of what he saw uh, around the evidence of this trial? Why didn't he just go ahead and say he's guilty? So I think in four years, the landscape is going to change. And I'd really like the, uh, you know, some thoughts from uh, from my other panelists about that.
4: I'm hopeful, like you, Michael. Um, but I I don't know. I'm also trying to be, you know, realistic. You know, many, many of us are scared of being disappointed. If Donald Trump doesn't, and in four years he is, again, I don't know. I don't know how to explain that to my children. I honestly don't. Um, After all the hatred and all the damage he did during his presidency, after allowing and sort of undermining our democracy, if your prediction doesn't come true, um, it's going to be difficult for me as a parent. Uh, When my kids, you know, I sort of joke, I have three and a half year old twins. Um, Actually, the day that President Trump was elected, I found out I was pregnant. and you know, I, I sort of joke that they will never remember because they're so young, and I hope that that is the case in the future too—that they don't, you know, remember and and the anguish and and everything that so many um, fellow Americans—I am privileged enough to be a, a white woman. I didn't feel the anguish directly, but I know so many people who have over his presidency. So um, I don't know. I want I want to hope that what you're saying is is right, but I. Uh, I'm also kind of cautious and I don't know that that's where we're going to be in four years time.
3: Well, I'm going to throw in the old joke about the optimist and the pessimist and say, you know, the pessimist says, you know, everything's terrible. It can't get any worse. And the optimist says, well, yes, it can. And uh, you know, that's probably where we're headed. Um, I, I, I agree with you, Michael. Um, I do believe the landscape is going to change over the next four years. I do believe that there will be more conversations like we are having here today. I truly believe that people's eyes were opened up by uh, what they witnessed on January 6th. And I do certainly believe that there will be some investigations and trials Uh, both in the civil courts and the criminal courts. Uh, um, I did see that uh, a congressman filed a civil action uh, against uh, the president and a host of others. Uh, That case will play out. Uh, The uh, district attorney in Georgia is looking into uh, tampering with elections, which are criminal offenses. Uh, The New York uh, uh, district attorney Uh, Is looking into issues involving the foundations and the taxes. And the Supreme Court just the other day upheld the ability of the district attorney in New York to get all the tax returns from uh, the former president and his companies. So, uh, you know, there's enough out there on the plate to say that, uh, you know, the landscape will be vastly different. Uh, I am going to take that optimist view and say that uh, God bless him if they send him back in 2024. That will just show me that uh, they really hate this country if they're willing to put that man back uh, in power.
4: Can I jump in and say one more thing? Somebody um, recently commented to me saying how nice it is that the media isn't constantly talking about Trump. So part of me is like, can we just forget this? Can we like not cover all the time, the follow-up? the cry- like? He gains a lot by just being in the media and being the center of our conversation. So if for four years we don't mention his name, he's not on Twitter, Like, would that do us better. So, just throwing it out there that many people are just ready to to move on and and see a, a strong President Biden and a strong Democratic Party. And and let's not dwell on on him because even that kind of negative attention is is still attention. And he thrives. And his you know his reputation continues. While still, I agree
3: with you, Natalia. Yeah. I want accountability.
4: I want accountability. And that's too. what it's about. But I guess it's it's wanting to do it without the media covering every single moment of the trial and you know, is there a way for the media to not give him that error that you know, so many I, I feel like there was a conversation among journalists saying, like, is this on us? Like, did we give him more time than we gave other candidates? Like, can the trials go on and the accountability go on without us listening to every single, you know, without having to follow it in such intensity?
0: Well, part of the problem is the fact that social media is involved and that's not curated. And therefore, even though he's lost his Twitter account and so on, while there was curation going on in the broadcast channels with some degree of responsibility, social media and virality at this point is an X factor that you can't disregard. And that's where we, he really, really got his power. Uh, far as I'm concerned, 2024 to me is shaping up a little bit to be like Jaws 2. The Democrats need a bigger
2: boat. Well, I'd like to, you know, sort of end my, my commentary with two pieces. One, I agree with Natalia that let's stop talking about him. Uh, my indigenous Native American friends have a, uh, uh, have a philosophy that uh, once one of your ancestors passes away, they are never truly dead until you stop mentioning their name or talking about them. Uh, so Natalia, in that respect, I agree with you. Let's stop talking about Trump. But at the same time, all of the folks who are trying to be like him, all of the folks who are ignoring the fact that the Republican party is actually shrinking And all of the folks who are ignoring that even though they've only been in office a month, Biden is already creating a uh, cross the aisle coalition of Republicans who are beginning to agree with what he's trying to what he and Harris are trying to do. And I think, again, that's what's leading me to be somewhat of a different kind of at least projectionist optimist. Uh, And that is that in four years time, we don't know how popular Biden and his administration may be at that point and how people will sort of rally around his cause to rebuild better uh and to also bring people together. And one thing that uh, so this is the second thing that I'd like to throw out uh, in my closing, which is that We need to stop talking about bipartisanism in a strict focus on Congress. Bipartisanism for me is now people who disagree out in the general public, who then can come together around issues. And I think Biden and his administration have demonstrated that they need to redefine uh, bipartisanism that let's not think of looking at trying to convince Mitch McConnell of anything, but let's convince the people of Kentucky what's in their best interest. Let's not take a look at Ron Johnson, who is still spouting this, you know, this QAnon kinds of stuff off the net, but look at how we can bring the people of Wisconsin together around issues.
1: I would like to thank the panel for another week of, uh, interesting and the divergent opinions that shed light on a journey to a more perfect union. I would like to point out that one of our members, uh, State Representative Jeff Roy, has just been named as the chairman of the Joint Committee on Telecommunications, Utility, and Transportation uh, all of those issues: energy,
3: energy, frame, energy. Uh, telecommunications, energy. utilities, and energy.
1: And this is a joint Senate and House committee. Is that correct? That is correct. So there congratulations, are congratulations, congratulations, congratulations.
3: Thank you. I will not sleep for the next two years.
2: <laughs> you won't. And is it is it true, Jeff, that you do not have a condo in Texas? <laughs> <laughs> never have, never will. <laughs>
3: So you're the great, you're the best guy for energy then. There you go. All I can say is all my exes live in Texas.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Which are none. (laughs) And hopefully it will stay that way. (laughs) Now there's at least one. In the next two
2: years. (laughs) There's at least one ex. You missed a joke, Frank. There's there's at least
1: one ex. So this is your host, Frank Falby, uh, thanking your panel. Uh, and uh, please, listener, we we truly appreciate your turning in to this program. Uh, All of the panelists uh, really uh, would like to hear from you. Pete, how do they do that?
0: If you'd like to be involved, if you'd like to get in touch, if you'd like to say what you think, you can write to us by email at info at franklin.tv. That's info at franklin.tv. For Frank, and our entire roundtable. I'm Peter J. Thanks for listening. This is Franklin Public Radio.